there. What happens if he did something wrong? He died. Now, on this day, there were two goats that they would sacrifice. The first one, or they didn't sacrifice. One they sacrificed, one they did. The first goat, and you can see here, you've got the people around him. You notice he's in white. That is the tunic that the high priest would wear on the Day of Atonement. Okay? So it was a little bit different. You've got two goats. One is sacrificed for God. They would take the blood. He would sprinkle it on everything, make atonement. The other one was known as a scapegoat, the name Azazel. We talked about that on, on uh, Wednesday night, but basically that one would get sent off into the desert, and now the sins of the nation are atoned for. So in order for the high priest to do this, he had to do two things. One, sacrifice and cleanse himself for he and his family. Then he steps in as the mediator for the nation of Israel and begins to make these sacrifices for the entire nation. And guess what? If he screws it up, what happens? What other day can he use to sacrifice and bring atonement upon the nation of Israel? There is no other day. You got one shot. There are two goats. If you accidentally kill one on the way to the tabernacle, guess what? There's not a third goat. There's a lot of pressure on this man. Which brings us to what we were talking about. In Psalm 110 verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a prophecy. The entirety of the book of Hebrews is explaining this idea of our great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now here it is. We've got the picture of the high priest. This is what he looked like. This is what he wore. This is how he walked around. How did you pick him out of the crowd? It'd be pretty easy if he's wearing that. He kind of sticks out. Okay? Now, we talked about why can we enter boldly into the throne room of grace? Where was the throne room? It was the Holy of Holies. Who went in there? The high priest. Because of this atoning sacrifice, for some reason, now we get to enter in there. And that's interesting. We kind of blaze over that a lot of times when we're reading it, but this was uncharted territories. This was something new. Now, I told you last week as we began digging into this, and I don't want to rehash all of this, but if you weren't here, go back and listen to it, is that the high priest at that time was a guy named Caiaphas. He was chosen by the Romans. Romans put him in charge. It was because of his father, Ananias, or Anus, or whatever you want to call him. And so um, he was there, but was he the rightful high priest? No, he was not. Because it was a man chosen by God. But then you begin to look at what John had done. And when John wanted, to, or Jesus wanted to be baptized by John, and John didn't want to do it, he says, you need to baptize me. But Jesus said, we've got to do this, so that it will fulfill all righteousness. Why was that significant? If you look at the order of which uh, John came from, it was the order of Abijah from his father. Abijah being one of the sons of Aaron. And thus he was qualified for the high priest. So I speculate that he may have been the rightful high priest chosen by God at that time. And when they passed from one high priest to the next, they would baptize that high priest. Why was Jesus so adamant to be done? Because I believe in that moment, they were now transitioning from the old covenant to this new covenant. One more piece of evidence for that idea is that when Jesus is talking about John, he says the law and the prophets were until John. But since then, the kingdom of heaven has been preached. It's in Matthew. So, again, what was so significant about John? I believe that is the significance. So what does that have to do with us? As a result of this, the old covenant now being ended. Remember, we're dealing with the nation of Israel. You and I are grafted into this whole thing. This was not for us. It was for them. But as a result of their unbelief, now it is grafted in the entire nation. Or the entire world, I should say. 
And so this better covenant based on better promises is now being instituted. And to understand why that matters, we've had to compare the covenants. And we did that. We looked at the ones that were basically God promising on behalf of you and the agreement between the nation and God himself. The Mosaic covenant, the one that has ended, is an example of that. But let's dive into Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, all right? Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. So what does that mean? That means pay attention. He's finally getting to the point. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. That's interesting how he just said that. He just made a very profound statement in that moment. Can we put that picture back up of the tabernacle, the inside of the tabernacle? Just for a minute, because I want you to get this. All right, you notice all the things. Everything that's in there was ordained by God. What's not in there? There's no seats. Why are there no seats? Because the work of the priesthood was never done. They don't sit down because they're always working. There's always, they always had to refill the oil. They always had to refill the bread. They always had to get the altar and the incense going. They had to keep that going. But when the high priest completed his work that day, was he done? No. He still had high priestly duties to perform each and every day. And guess what? In one year, he's got to do this all over again. But look what it just said here. This is referring to Jesus, our high priest. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Why did he sit down? Works completed. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So we're talking about a tabernacle that is in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also having something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So let's break this down a little bit. Every high priest is appointed by God for gifts and sacrifices. Thus, Jesus, being a high priest, had to do the same. But, if the law was still in play, he could not be a priest. Why? He doesn't fit the narrative. He's not a Levite, and he's not of the line of Aaron. There are already priests that do that according to the law. But they're not serving the actual temple, the actual tabernacle. They are serving the copy the shadow. In other words, as we said before, Moses saw in heaven and created based off what he saw. You guys following me so far? It's very important we get that. Then it comes to the part where he, being Jesus, has a more excellent ministry because he's a mediator, which is exactly what the high priest was, of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So why is this covenant better and why are the promises better? I'll give you a quick and dirty answer. You ready? Because that's what it says. Isn't that simple? We don't have to complicate it any more than that. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. 
Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So now we know exactly what covenant he's referring to. This is Which one did he lead them by the hand out of Egypt for? The Mosaic covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, that I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteous and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And what he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, this is huge, because remember, why do we undermine the Mosaic Covenant? We do it because we never lived in it. You see, we've always had the benefit of this new covenant. We've never known anything else. It's kind of like when you grow up in a wealthy family, you sometimes will not appreciate what you have because you didn't see when things were bad, when things were tight. It's kind of like, if you're in this country and you live up here, we tend to take a lot of things for granted, like electricity, like running water. What did we learn last year? Toilet paper. Big deal, right? But you go to other parts of the world and your eyes are open because suddenly it's like, I'm seeing how the rest of the world lives. I don't care how bad you got it, it's better than most of the world. So because of this, and we don't understand it. We didn't live there. We weren't there for the sacrifices. We weren't there for the different incursions that, uh, that came in where they were taken captive. We weren't there for the, uh, the Israelites being enslaved. We weren't there for any of this stuff. The persecution, the killings, all of that. We weren't there for any of that. Here we just have the benefit of everything that they went through. And so when he talks about this, he is making a very, very big deal. He says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Which doesn't mean he forgot. It means that he chose not to remember which is crucial. Then he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Who made the first obsolete? God did. That means now the nation of Israel, its sacrifices are no longer relevant because the sacrifice has been made. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What is that referencing to? Obsolete, which means what? No longer useful. We don't need this anymore. Okay. And growing old, what is that a reference to? If you came on Wednesdays when I taught through the entire book of Hebrews, I believe that this is a picture of what's about to happen because the temple is going to be destroyed in a few short decades from this moment. They no longer can make, they have not made sacrifices since the destruction of the temple. That's why it's growing old and ready to vanish away. The whole system's about to come up. So now we see we have this better covenant. We see that it's based on better promises. But here's the thing. It doesn't stop there. We have a better sanctuary as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So we know that that's the holy place, right? And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
Okay, so they're not talking about that. They're moving on. But we see the sanctuary is talking about that holy place. And then you get into the holier part. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing their services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscious, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of reformation. Now, let's stop for a minute. It's talking about how it was symbolic. In other words, this is not the end. This is pointing. It's like a shadow of things to come. Colossians talks about that. But what were they concerned with? Okay, we've got to get the performance right. Has to go in their sacrifices, has to wash. Has to go in their sacrifice for the nation, has to wash. Has to take the blood and sprinkle it. They're concerned with all these different things, the certain food they eat, the certain drinks they drink, when and what order and all of that kind of stuff. Those are the things that he had to do. These were fleshly ordinances, but they were only there until what? The time of Reformation. We're not talking about the 1500s, Okay. We're talking about when all things are being transitioned into this new covenant. So we have a better covenant based on better promises. And because of that, we have a better sanctuary, as we're going to see more so here in a minute. But ultimately, we have a better sacrifice. Look at verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. So what's he talking about? tabernacle in heaven. He came into this, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all and having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we're talking about everlasting life. So when Christ comes as high priest, he didn't come as high priest in that covenant, but of the good things to come, the things that were coming of a greater and more perfect tabernacle that wasn't made with hands. It's the picture of the one in heaven. He didn't come in with the blood of others to cover. He came in with his own blood, thus making him the perfect offerer and the perfect offering. That has never existed before in mankind's history. It was not possible for anybody else to do this. And so if the blood of the bulls and goats were able to take care of what Jesus' blood did, then none of this was necessary. But yet it wasn't. So here we go. He becomes the mediator of the new covenant and by means of death. Now that's an interesting phrase. For the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant. Why does his death matter? Let's go to verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Now let's stop for a minute. 
So we have the death of the testator. Anybody in here have a will? And that will has nothing to do with what the kids get while you're alive because it is immediately enacted upon your death. And your wishes are now carried out among, upon your death. If you have a testament, you have to have a testator. That one must die. It has no power as long as they are alive. Now, he talks about the first covenant was uh, dedicated with blood. Okay? Verse 19. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Now, stop for a minute. This was an agreement between the nation of Israel and God. A sacrifice was made. It was a blood covenant. The blood was sacrificed, and then it was sprinkled. It says, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Does those words sound familiar? This is the blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Why was he making that phrase so widely known? Why did he use that phrase? It doesn't make any sense to us unless you understand this. So let's look at verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies with the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to had, had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He came as a sacrificial lamb. He's coming as the reigning king. Now, if you look at this, he talks about how they were purifying the copies. But what did Jesus do? Enter the holy place not made with hands, purifying with his own blood. He did not have to do this again and again and again. We begin to see the big distinctions here, but why does that matter? It matters because once the work is complete, what do you do? You rest. The resting is the entire premise of the book of Hebrews. That is the point. The work has now been completed. You no longer have to go and do these things. You no longer have to go and enter into this agreement or do this part or, or sacrifice this thing. You don't have to do anything. It's all been done. And so now because of that, here you are. You are set free. You're made whole. Life is good. All you have to do is put your faith, hope, and trust in the work that's been done. And it has now been done. So he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He enters into the holy place on our behalf. Now let's look at chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. See, every year they're reminded. 
of how they do not meet God's standards. They're reminded of all the things that they as a nation have done every single year. Verse 5, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, what are we talking about here? Every year? Never again. It's already been done. Every priest, verse 11, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which could never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. What do we see? We see the distinction. We see something new is going on here. This sacrifice that Jesus has made is a once and done thing. There's something clearly new that's going on here. Now, what's interesting with that is that you will see some different religious ideas out there that comes to the sacrifice of Jesus, okay? The idea of what's called transubstantiation is practiced by the Catholic Church inside the Eucharist. When they have the Mass, what do they do? They take the body... And they break it. And they take the cup and they consume it. And by doing this, they believe that each and every Mass, they are re-sacrificing Jesus because that bread is literally His body and literally His blood. It transforms inside of you and you are sacrificing Him once again because the work that He performed did not meet up. That's not how they would say it, but that's what it is. They believe this so much so should the priest spill the wine onto the ground, he would get down and suck it out of the carpet. I believe there are videos on YouTube if you are so indulgent. The other side of this is what's called consubstantiation. It's practiced by some other groups, and this is closer to the reality, is that it's not that it's literally his body and literally his blood, but that his, he is one with it. But what are we doing again? We are sacrificing. Again, they would not use this term, but that's essentially what we're saying. If he is with us, we're sacrificing him. What are we doing when we take communion? We're remembering what has been done. The key word is done. You see, most people come, try to come to God and they'll put a list of things to do and it's like, you got to do this, do that. Jesus said, I have done it. He sat down. Now, I've got a picture of the tabernacle again. Why is that such a big deal? There's no chair. What do you do when you're done with the work? You stop. What did, you, what did God do when he created the heavens and the earth? He rested. He was done. He wasn't tired. The work was completed. This is the same idea here. He sat down. We missed that. We don't have to worry about anything. So now what he has said is that whatever is in that testament, because of the death of the testator, now the promises are enacted. I mean, if you had a loved one who passed away, and in their will, at their death, they're giving you $1 million. Some of you got that, some of you didn't. I used the wrong hand, I don't know. $1 million. 
It is yours. What do you have to do to earn it? Nothing. It rightfully belongs to you. But what if somebody comes up and says, no, 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 that's not yours. No, that rightfully belongs to you. There is a legal precedence that that money that you did not earn, that you didn't work for, that you didn't scrimp and save, you didn't do anything for it, rightfully belongs to you. It's yours. What do you do with it? That's the question, which is where we're going. Now let's look at this last part. Verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had, made, he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What offering is left for sin? It's been taken care of. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day? The return. Now let's look at this, because the, there's a very powerful statement in here. Therefore, brethren, who are the brethren? We enter boldly into the holiest. Whoa, stop. Who entered into the holiest? The high priest. He says, we enter. How? The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice. You had to take the sacrifice in there. How? By a new and living, not dead way. You guys get that? Why is it a new way? Because that's not how they did it before. Why is it a living way? Sacrifice is done, and the sacrifice lives again. He consecrated for us through the veil. What's the veil? It is that really thick curtain that's the size of a hand that we don't believe had an opening, but we don't know for sure. That one man got to enter through. How do we get through there? What is the veil? Oh, it's his flesh. Whoa. What, again, the throne room of God was the holy of holies. It's where the Shekinah glory is. One man got to experience that once a year by entering in. Now, what was in there? God. Right? That veil that you have to pass through in order to get to the presence of God, is whom? Jesus. No man comes to the Father but by me. You guys see that? This all interconnects. Having a high priest over the house of God. The house of God was what? The temple. He's our high priest. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now stop. Can you imagine being the high priest? How confident were you knowing if I did this wrong and I go in that room, I'm done? But what's he saying? Having, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, they sprinkled the blood, 
from an evil conscience and our bodies washed, they would mikvah, with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That brings us right back to that verse we've been reading for the last four or five weeks. Why do we depend on what God has done? Because he who promised is faithful. This is why we can now boldly enter into the throne room of God. Because the veil, which was torn at the moment of Christ's death, no longer separates us from God because the sacrifice has been made once for all, never again. And because of that, whatever the testament is of the result of this new covenant and what Jesus has promised in this new covenant, we call it a new testament, right? It is the testament of the death of Jesus and the results thereof. Therefore, whatever was given to us and promises because of the death of Christ is ours for the taking, is it not? I had a tenant one time that rented a house from me, and she was, she's a little wackadoo. She was an older gal. She's very nice, but she always had money problems. And she'd work, and she'd get mad at somebody, and she'd quit. She'd work, she'd get mad at somebody, and she'd quit. We went through this for a long time. And, uh, I mean, she was, she was kind of nutty, but she was funny, and she, she'd bring us cookies, and she was a sweet gal. And then one day, she was just gone, which is very unlike her. And uh, I was out of town. I was thinking I was at a conference in South Dakota, and... My wife is calling me. She's like, she has not been home, which is very unlike her. And so, anyway, I think she was 64, if I recall, something like that. And uh, so, well, I was over there. The dog is there. I'm like, well, just keep an eye on the house. And, you know, that's just, did something happen? I don't know what's going on. You know, she lived by herself. And um, after an amount of time, she's not been home. And so I told Amy, I said, go get the dog, you know. Because we can't leave the dog sitting in the house. And I said, and I'm like, you might contact the police because this is just odd behavior. Well, long story short, she stepped in front of a train that night and killed herself. As I said, she wasn't all there. She's been having money problems for a long time. After her death, we, of course, got to go into the house and take care of stuff. We get contacted by her sister. We didn't know she had any family members. She never talked about any of these people. But there had been a rift. There were three siblings. Her sister her brother, and then her, and there was a major rift because she would have nothing to do with any of them. Turns out that her brother had worked on the Hubble telescope, if I recall, very intelligent man. Her sister was a classic pianist who taught piano. Both of them are very well off, and then you have her. Her name was Chris, but that has nothing to do with the name, okay? (laughs) And there was just always something with her. Nothing was ever right with her or anything like that. Um... We found out during this time, where she's sending us pictures and she's telling us a story about Chris and all that, we found a bunch of gambling cards like down to the casino, so we, now we figure out where, why she was always having money problems. But what Chris did not know is that if she had lived to 65, there was a trust that was set up for her by the family that she'd have never had to work again. It was like four months down the road. She did not know it existed because they were concerned that she may try to get it before the time it was set up to take care of her because apparently she just wasn't all right there. Now here it is, a guarantee. But she didn't know it existed. And she didn't know what to do with it even if it, she had known, right? And her sister was just heartbroken just knowing the trouble that she had had. That is where we as the body of Christ are today. Because the testament of Jesus has guaranteed certain promises with it. 
But if we don't know they exist or we get talked out of the fact that they rightfully belong to us, we will never act on those promises. You guys see why this is so crucial? Because that's where we are today. It's like the testator has died and we have a guarantee of life everlasting and promises on this earth, but we stand there and we argue with the document that contains that. Now we're going to start digging more so into that. Do you guys get this? I know this was a lot. This is like drinking out of a fire hose. I get that. But it's so crucial that we understand. I'm not just coming to you and saying, guess what, guys? It's God's will to heal you. I'm showing you why it's a lock in Scripture of why it is God's will that we walk in health at all times. It's a promise. We have faith in everlasting life, and we struggle of everything that, frankly, doesn't matter as much. So let's get into the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises. Every week, Lord, we say we just thank You for the guarantee that You have given us. Lord, I thank You that as we continue in this and we learn what those guarantees are, that we will walk in the faith knowing that Your Word is true, knowing Your promises are true, that we hold fast to the confession of our hope because You are faithful. You've always been faithful. You will always be faithful. We never have to doubt You. We don't have to doubt Your Word, Lord. We can stand on it knowing that it is guaranteed by You. And so, Lord, we thank You for all that You've done and continue to do, Lord. We thank You for the time that we have here together. We thank You for the food that we're about to partake as we celebrate a a family we're going to miss dearly. We thank You, Lord that you're with them. We think of this food blesses our bodies, that we can go out and do the work of the ministry, Lord, to share this truth. We give you all the glories. In Jesus' name, amen.